Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting live 
every year on April 19th and make sure that we've plugged ourselves back into this. Uh, and uh, the time to make sure that, that you have the events that you're geared up for it is now. Don't wait till the last second. Make sure you got all your <clears throat> your shoe boxes ordered. And uh, if you have somebody special coming out or you'd like to have somebody special coming out, hopefully you've already uh, set it up. And make sure you're checking with them. Make sure you have all your last-minute stuff done so that you can have a really great uh, April 19th weekend. Uh, I'm not sure how many events we're going to be running this year. I do know that whenever I looked, when I ordered a shoot box uh, yesterday, that uh, the line was pretty long of folks ordering shoot boxes. Uh, I'm sure that we'll have a uh, a number out soon of the of the planned April 19th of April 19th events, <clears throat> and as soon as we do, I'll uh, I'll be sure to relay that to you. Uh, I want to tell you about, uh, or just give you a reminder. Uh, this is the month of March, and I just want to remind you that during the American Revolutionary War. There were eight long bloody years, and when when the men and women went into this conflict, they did not know, they did not have the benefit of knowing like we do, that they would have a successful, uh, they would have a successful uh, war for independence. They, they went in with... Uh, with a lot of worries, a lot of doubts, uh, a, a lot of uh, anxiety about whether or not this would be successful or not. So you can bet that uh, all of the folks that had signed their names to the Declaration of Independence once the war had begun, and, uh, and many, many more folks were absolutely guaranteed of a swift execution and hanging if this was not successful. And that's what happens to rebels and rebellions. They get uh, they get executed. They get hung and shot, etc. And uh, the folks had no guarantee that it would come out in their favor, and yet they did it anyway. They they worked their courage up, and they did the things that needed to be done in order for this to happen. All right. Now, what we're asking folks to do is in no way as dangerous as that. What we're asking you to do is get together uh, with a group of your friends and come out to uh, an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship Weekend and to, to socialize with your friends, to set yourself a goal of improving your rifle marksmanship and then meeting and exceeding that goal and then uh, when you get home, about telling other folks about this. Because it's one of the things that you're going to learn at the uh, at the April 19th events on the uh, Appleseed two-day rifle marksmanship events is, <clears throat> is that this wasn't done alone. Nobody was doing this alone. Uh, everybody had their their shoulders to the wheel in some way, in some fashion. On April 19th, you had the folks that uh, had grabbed their, you had the Minutemen who had grabbed, initially grabbed their, their muskets and their powder and their ball and taken off to form up. Then you had the uh, the additional militia units filing afterwards. 
you have the uh, alarmless folks who were uh, dedicated to uh, normally taking care of the town or the village while the rest of the guys were away. You have the women and kids making sandwiches, and uh, and while the battles were going on, they were melting uh, tin and melting uh, lead and pouring up balls and uh, and sending uh, leather sacks of still hot uh, musket balls in sacks uh, by horseback on their children's horses their, uh, and uh, taking the, the food and the gunpowder and shot to the folks out in the field. This was all... Uh, this was not an individual operation, as a lot of the history books would have you believe. It was not a, a spontaneous uprising, and each man on his own uh, fought the British regulars from his own position. Where there were company-sized uh, units responding, and by the end of the day, uh, there were brigade-sized units uh, working together uh, under the command of a general. And this whole thing could not have taken place without the folks working together. This is what we have to do now. There's, and I'm not talking about uh, uh, an armed insurrection. I'm talking about that we're going to have to work together in order to make this country better. We're going to have to work together in order to make sure that the freedoms and liberties that that we enjoy by virtue of living in this nation, that they are safeguarded uh, and thank, praise the Lord that we do not have to stand together in ranks and, and shoot and be shot at for this to happen. The whole reason that those guys did is they didn't have any other choice, okay? But once the American Revolutionary War was won, they set up the documents that uh, guide this nation, and they set them up so that we would not have to go through what they had done, Right? We have a a government that is run by the people, and that works great if the people are involved and if the people actually do what they're supposed to do. Now I tell you every week that one of the best, uh, one of the first and best things you can do is to make sure that you have a uh, an active relationship with your representatives, not just your your national senators and congressmen, but your state. Reps, uh, make sure that uh, that you're involved uh, at the ground level, at your local level, right? Local politics uh, are the actual real politics, the school boards and the uh, city councils. And make sure that you're involved uh, in whatever way that you decide to become involved in. Make sure that you're involved and that you're plugged in, that, you're, that you are keeping watch, that you're not letting these freedoms and liberties be eroded uh, while you are acting in some kind of a somnambulistic fashion and you're, you're, you're sleepwalking through your life and letting this happen and then yelling when it does happen, all right? We'd like you to be plugged in and working to see that it doesn't. And a lot of the Appleseed folks are doing just that. We've got a lot of folks that are plugged in and really working on this. And by when I say working, I don't mean forwarding emails, uh, especially panic emails. Uh, I mean, uh, doing actually doing stuff like uh, talking 
to your reps, either by telephone or email or face-to-face. Uh, and, of course, face-to-face is going to be the absolute best, is uh, sitting in a chair across from them and uh, and letting them know what you need from them and how important it is to you and why it's important. Uh, and I've told you guys many times on the radio show, too, that I always uh, start off the 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 thought or the process with the idea that uh, perhaps my rep just doesn't know what needs to be done. And in that case, I can tell him. I can tell him what needs to be done, uh, what I need for him to do, and then he'll be on the right track. And uh, I think that's the way you should look at it, too. So you should make sure that your rep knows what needs to be done. And and I've told you guys many times, too, that because of the the apathy in this nation, the apathy of, of so many people with the uh the 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 thoughts that it's not gonna make any difference if I do anything because my vote is is so small and so meaningless. Uh it's just the opposite of that. Because there's so much uh, apathy, so much indifference on the part of the uh, American constituency, then your one voice talking to your senator, congressman, or your city councilman, or whatever, uh, carries a great deal of weight because they know that only one out of uh, X number of folks is going to take the time to call them. And if if you do that, it's going to make a difference. How do you think that? How do you think that all of these small uh, splinter groups that have such a a small percentage of the voting population push through such uh, so many radical uh, bills and stuff like that because they they fired up their uh, their workers and have them constantly uh, petitioning and haranguing the the folks until something was done about it. Well, you can do the exact same thing. All right. And personally, I don't care if if you're anti-gun, if you're anti-gun, or if you are on the far left. I don't care. Uh, it's still your job to be letting your representatives know what they're supposed to be doing. All right, that's how government works. Uh, I have, I, I get, I talk to my rep. I tell them what I need. And hopefully the rest of the folks that uh, feel the same way as I do, we talk to the reps, we let them know what we need. The other folks do the same thing, and uh, then it's hashed out at the end of the day. And that's how government is supposed to work. It's not supposed to work by nobody saying anything and having the your representatives begin to think that they can do what they want because nobody's watching or paying attention anyway. Nobody's watching, nobody's listening. Uh, we'll just do what we want. And it's kind of evolving into a situation where where they have become almost like uh, the new royalty, where where we're expected to uh, to go on bended <clears throat> knee to beg a boon of our representatives. That's not the way it was ever meant to work, all right? And the only way to change this is for us to actually change it. That's for us to get involved. <clears throat> all right, uh... The eight long, the eight long bloody years of the American Revolution. Uh, if you look at the 
the uh, list of American Revolutionary War battles in Wikipedia. And they've done a good job, uh, good job of uh, listing these chronologically. <clears throat> and usually once a month I'll try and come back here and take a look at this and, and try and get it to you guys. They've got uh, the battles listed here throughout the eight years. I'm going to read you off the the battles that uh, occurred in March. Now, we we have the the Siege of Boston, which began on April 19th, 1775, and ran almost a full year, ran all the way to March 17th, 1776. And uh, that was when uh, the uh, Dorchester Heights had been, uh, where they had uh, garrisoned Dorchester Heights and, uh, and put... Uh, Position artillery there, which made uh, the actual defense of the city of Boston made it untenable, and uh, the the British regulars uh, had to load aboard ships and sail off because they couldn't they could not defend Boston uh, whenever the uh, when the colonists had moved artillery to the heights above Boston. Uh, then in 1776. We have the Battle of Rice Boats, the Battle of Nassau, and the fortification of Dorchester Heights, which I already listed. That's the that's whenever they brought in the guns. They brought the guns in on March fourth, but then uh, the folks, uh, the British, saw that their was, position was untenable immediately because the guns uh, were able to threaten Boston and to threaten the ships at sea, the ships at uh, anchor there, and the ships in Boston Harbor. While the ships in Boston would not be able to, uh, they weren't going to be able to fire back, they weren't going to be able to elevate their guns to that height in order to fight back. But it still took uh, several weeks for them to to make the deal. And the deal was, I believe, uh, uh they made the deal that, look, you guys, if you do not start firing on us, then we will we'll pack up and leave without any damage. But if there's any shooting that starts, we're going to burn this city to the ground. And, uh, and uh, Congress did not want the city burned to the ground. And there was no need to cause uh, uh, the loss of life that would have occurred if that would have happened. So... Once they had uh, fortified Dorchester Heights, uh, then it was uh, kind of like a, uh, a ceasefire until the, the British actually left. You know, the Battle of St. Pierre was March 26, 1776. In 1777, <clears throat> the Battle of Punk Hill. <laughs> that's a uh, uh, that's a strange-sounding name, but... Uh, the uh, the Battle of Punk Hill was really a it, it was a minor skirmish uh, in the in in a, a larger type situation. That was the the forage war during the American Revolutionary War. And that's uh, because both sides didn't have a great supply system. So what they were having to do in order to get food and supplies, they're having to go out and forage for it. They're going to have to go out and uh, and cut uh, any standing uh, wheat or oats or anything like that in the fields. Uh, they were having to uh, seize cattle and ducks and pigs and things like that, and uh, uh, and barrels of flour, whatever whatever they could get. They were having to go out and forage for it and seize it and then bring it back. And the uh, Battle of Punk Hill was actually a relatively minor battle that occurred uh, during the what was called the, the Forage War. 
1778, uh, there was a Battle of Clinton's Bridge, which was uh, another uh, smaller battle. And I know that a lot of these the battles don't they probably don't ring a bell with you. There was uh, there were quite a few, uh, but this was a battle that was fought during the occupation of Philadelphia. And this was a New Jersey militia. Uh, they were de- defending the bridge across Alloway Creek. This was in Salem County in New Jersey. And they were lured into a trap there by the British Lieutenant uh, Charles Marwood. And uh, and it didn't fare out so well for the, uh, for the New Jersey militia. Uh, you've got the, in 1779, You've got the Battle of uh, Briar Creek, and uh, that was on March 3rd. And uh, the Battle of Briar Creek uh, was uh, was a battle that was fought near the the confluence of the Briar Creek and the Savannah River. And this is in eastern Georgia. And once again, a lot of folks, a lot of folks, when they think about the American Revolutionary War. They don't think about it being fought in the South. They think about all the battles being fought up north, Boston and uh, 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 Philadelphia, all those, these, the, uh, these surrounding uh, uh, northern colonies. But there were a lot of southern colonies, and actually a great deal, almost uh, half of the war, ended up being fought in the South. And a lot of the... Uh, uh, a lot of the major battles being fought in the South. And uh, uh, let's see, then, in 1780, in 1780, we have uh, the San Juan Expedition and the Battle of Fort Charlotte and the Siege of Charleston beginning, and that ran from March 29th until May 12th. And uh, in 1781, we have the Battle of Wetzel's Mill and the Battle of Pensacola and the Battle of Guilford Courthouse on March uh, 15th, along with the Battle of Cape Henry on March 16th. That's a sea battle. In 1782, uh, we have the action of 16 March 1782, the Battle of Little Mountain on March 27th, and uh, that is uh, that's really the the only battles that were fought in March during the war. Uh, all right. Uh, okay, we've got uh, we've got uh, a few minutes left here until. Uh, until we're going to call uh, Mr. Bowen and bring him on, but I want to remind folks to uh, to make sure that they are that they are getting ready for the April nineteenth events, and that you're continually continuously trying to recruit instructors out of your attendees. And I know that uh, most of you guys are doing it. Uh, I'd just like to remind folks because that's the only way we're going to get that's the only way you're going to get yourself back on the couch. And that is to recruit somebody to take your place, all right? And in order to do that, you've got to get folks into the pipeline, have them uh, into the instructor pipeline so that they can be learning their craft and learning their trade uh, during the year so that they can eventually uh, be running events on their own. Uh, 
and we have to do this in order to keep expanding. So you have to take a, a really close look at your recruitment process and make sure that you are that it's high up on your list of priorities, and that is uh, running your recruitment at events, making sure that you're being inclusive, uh, that if there are folks who seem like they that that they would like to eventually become instructors, that you are uh, maybe uh, including them in uh, uh, in morning briefings or something like that, so that uh, so that they can start getting a feel for what it's like to be an instructor, and uh, and hopefully that you are that you're helping uh, to bring new folks into the program. All right. Uh, and at the same time, is we need to continuously uh, be looking at expanding our ranges. And that means we've got to make sure that uh, uh, if you've talked to the ranges last year and they wouldn't uh, give you the time of day, uh, that doesn't mean that it's going to be the same people running those ranges this year. All right, so put put it back in your on the rotation of talking to them about uh, seeing if they will uh, if they will they would be willing to host an event uh, this year or in the coming year. And then making sure when you're talking to the attendees, uh, we've had uh, private ranges uh, quite a bit from folks who uh, who have attended. And we've talked to the folks. And you ask the attendees who are there uh, if they would mind uh, uh, or if they have some land that they would have available for uh for holding events at, and uh, and if they'd be willing to consider that, and then uh, talk to them and see if you can't get them uh, uh, get them into the designated Appleseed Range program. All right. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, be trying to uh, to make sure that you are expanding the number uh, of events that you're running uh, on a yearly basis. If you've got a range to give you one Uh, Mr. Baldwin, uh, thanks yes, for coming on the show tonight. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Michael. Well, listen. Uh, I, first, I want to tell you that uh, I really appreciate uh, that the the huge body of work that uh, that you've done over the last thirty years. I think a lot of people they would uh, they look at your the body of work that you've done and and they're pulling out some of the high points, but you're one of those guys that uh that has, that really takes his work seriously and uh, and you've been doing uh, at least two movies or or two television shows a year since you started in 1980. It's a living, you know, I just try to get your foot in the door and stick around as long as you can. And that's <laughs> that's kind of kind of the way it works out here like any other business. Right, and uh and I think that you've done a great job. I mean, I, uh, when you when you first came on 
when I first saw you in uh, in My Bodyguard, and uh, and you were playing Linderman there, that uh, uh, and I'd never seen you before, but I it was one of the things where you see somebody and you say, well, where's this, where's this guy been? Because uh, because you did a, a, a fantastic job there, and then you just and you just you just kept going straight from there. Uh, did a lot of people uh, did a lot of people tell you that uh, uh, that they remember you from that from that show? I do I do get that not not so much the younger generation because the movie did come out in 1980 so uh, people that can access it on either Netflix or downloading it uh, elsewhere picking up a, a CD or DVD then then they can. Uh, then they can see it. I think it's good for kids, although resolutions in high school don't really end with fistfights so much anymore. So in this zero tolerance world. So I don't know. If, uh, <laughs> I don't know, if, you know. When we were growing up, my friend, things got settled by a fistfight. Well, you know, that's, that's really true. And, and I remember plenty of times it was even, uh, I don't, I don't mean it was it was condoned, you know. If you had uh, we had a trouble out on the uh, on the football field or something like that, then uh, they would throw out uh, a pair of boxing gloves on the ground and say, "Okay, settle it." And uh, exactly, as long as long as, as long as the kids were evenly matched, and when they, when you're in elementary school, and I mean when you get into high school, you start getting uh, weight disadvantages. It's unfair, so. But if you're relatively equally sized, put on those big old marshmallow gloves and have a whack. Right, and then, and then it was and, done. And then it was done. Uh, you, and, you fought. You were done. That, you shook hands. Yeah, and you and I, you and I both know that 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 comes from uh, a community where fathers have a strong presence, because that sort of thing can't go on with the without the father figure authority at home to back it up and say, "Okay, kid." You uh, you lost this fight, you settled it, move on, and and so the 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 discipline at home was backing up that sort of discipline that happened at school. We used to have we used to do the same thing at summer camp, put on the gloves and settle it, and the coaches would say, "It's over, enough of that, let's go play ball," and it was over. But that doesn't happen right. anymore. Right. I you know I went through that in the military. I mean, we had uh, we had the same thing. We uh, somebody that. Uh, Folks that weren't getting along or something, uh, there was a pair of old boxing gloves, two pair of old boxing gloves that were hanging by the back door. You went out the back door, you shut the door. Uh, they made a like an impenetrable wall uh, around the two fighters. The two fighters fought, and then it was done. It was over with, and uh, and you were you basically were not allowed to carry a grudge. Uh, and that was the and you know that's your peers backing that up, saying, okay, look, you lost, you lost, so shut up and deal with it. And your peers back that up. But like you said, it, it takes it takes either either a good, close working set of peers or uh, or a good father figure to make that work. Which is not to say that there aren't strong mothers out there. There are. And I know them. My mom was one of them, and there's the highest regard, but in general, if you start to lose father figures or diminish their role, you're going to lose the authority over these young boys who eventually get bigger and stronger than their mothers. Right. Well, going through the uh, going through the the last uh, the last thirty years of your of your career in uh, in entertainment, 
what would be what would you pull out as your as your highlights? Because I know a lot of times it's, it's the the actors' ideas of what they enjoyed are a lot different, uh, or sometimes kind of different at least from than what the uh, the audience might pick out. I guess I, I have four major mile mile markers that I kind of looked at throughout the years. The first one was my bodyguard, and then there were a few in between. DC Cat was one of them up until uh, Full Metal Jacket, so that one stands out for me. And then some uh, connective tissue and some cool uh, travels and TV movies and other smaller parts of movies and here and there. Uh, then I got into X-Files and Firefly, which became a movie serenity. And um, after that, I did a show called Chuck, uh, which went for five years on NBC, and some cartoon voiceover work, some video game voiceover work, and uh, it's but I would say the main the main ones that I would point to to my uh, my friends and family and fans would be my bodyguard, uh, Full Metal Jacket, uh, X Files, Firefly, and Chuck. Well, listen, the, and I, that's that's really uh, a, a good partial listing of my favorites too, and uh, and I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that no matter where you go. Uh, God bless you. You're going to be, for many people, you're always going to be animal mother because, you know, that's a, that was such a, a stand, a, a rock hard part. And, uh, and I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure that's the way, I'm sure that's the way a lot of people remember you. They probably, I bet people have called you that in real life, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, they have. And I'm uh, very honored when military uh, personnel, veterans come up to me and say that that was one of the inspirations for them to join the military and give them, get them on the right track in their lives. Uh, and I just, I just play acted at it. I, I tried to live up to it as best I can. You know, the one thing that bugs me when I go back and watch that picture and I, uh, I, I hope, well, anybody who knows anything about uh, rifles knows that uh, your trigger discipline is, is important. And uh, animal mother's trigger discipline was a little lacking. <laughs> Well, I think people would be willing to forgive, forgive that because of the uh, uh, because of the situation there that uh, that was going on. Because uh, you, know, you can't believe everything in a movie. I know that uh, that the M60 that you're using uh, uh, apparently between between what you were pulling the trigger on and uh, and what it was doing to the building, it looked to me like it was firing uh, about uh, 25 to 45 times. Uh, more rounds per second than it than it was made to shoot. But well, we, also, like, we, we also had the squad. We also had the squad firing behind me, giving cover too. So <laughs> it's interesting that that building. It took them three days to reload all those squibs that, that went into the building. So and we did that scene about four or five times. So over the course of a month, we completed that whole scene. When we landed on that wall, we were lost to the point where we get up to. Uh, Doc J and A falling into the sniper area. So that was about a month, month and a half of work, which is a long time for one scene, well, basically. I was reading uh, uh, just the other day. When, once I'd asked you to come on the show, I tried to make sure that I'd, that I'd done you know some reading and stuff. But I was reading a uh, a part of your uh, biography where you were talking about that, and you were saying that at the time that you were really young uh, during uh, the filming of Full Metal Jacket, and that 
that you were that you guys were keep you kept asking uh, Stanley Kubrick, how long is this going to take, or how much longer do we have to put up with this? And uh, well, we didn't, didn't we didn't know it was a whole month. Well, we were originally contracted for a much shorter period of time, so when it started to drag on for a longer period of time, we just the the not knowing when is this going to be over. The pace is something none of us were used to. So we did get a little squirrely, and it got a little cold, and you know we were just <laughs> we were just whiny little <laughs> we were whiny little actors, you know. What do we know we were doing the best we could. We were not we were not hardened hardened soldiers like uh, Lee Irving was. See, that's the one thing about Lee is that, and if you ever met him or talked to him, Lee Irving was, uh, you know, he was he was a man, and we were just boys, and he was basically trying to teach us to be men within a short period of time not having the benefit of, of uh, running us all through real boot camp. So we were play acting. Right, but he worked with you guys, right? He, I mean, did, not he just, did. Not just, to, not just the, the the acting portion that he was in, but, I mean, he, he actually worked with you guys like like you were in a unit, right? Uh, he did. He focused most of his time with the boot camp section and uh, training those guys through there. And uh, he he was around technical advisor wise for uh, the rest of the period, but uh, you know his he he did great. He he just uh, he he kept us he kept us motivated sometimes more than Stanley was able to. <laughs> he he was a bit he was a bit tougher. He was a bit tougher and stronger than Stanley. Although Stanley could scare the hell out of you too. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's also a little bit of the. The psychology of it too, which is Stanley can fire me, but I, I think that uh, Learmy is probably about a hair away from killing me, you know, <clears throat> because he could yeah. certainly uh, he could certainly make you believe that uh, that he was about ready to kill you, and then he could kill you very easily, and then have a cup of coffee afterwards with no no guilt of it, and, uh, and was, he did he was, a great job. He certainly let us know that he has the skills necessary. <laughs> well, that and and where were you guys filming that at? Believe it or not, it was London, England. We uh we shot in uh, the Epping Forest and out on this old gas works that is no longer there. It's been leveled and is now high rise condominiums now. But it was this old abandoned gas works on the east end of London called uh the Docklands near Beckton, which is on the river, but it was in a really crappy part of town. And it was basically an old bombed out gas works from uh, World War II era, era and uh, in the 50s. And they family just knocked a few more buildings down with some dynamite and lit some things on fire, trimmed it up with some Vietnamese-style uh, trim, and uh, let us run around in the, in the old coal dust and blue asbestos and all that crap, you know. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was good to, it was good to be young. Uh, you know, I never would have. I guess I never would have guessed that. Uh, for some reason in my mind, I don't know why, I thought it was filmed in the Philippines. Uh, I guess they must well, have brought in all the palm trees and planted them too. Yeah, here's the deal. We brought in about thirty or forty or fifty palm trees, put them in dumpsters, and moved them around at will in the shot. He could put dig a hole, he had backhoes, he could just drop them into the the dirt there. The dirt was pretty soft, so he could just drop those palm trees in and move them around in the shot. It was a pretty big area. You know, it's 30, 40, 50 acres of land, and uh, we get to run around on. But 
if you look at the show, if you look at Full Metal Jacket again, there's really only one shot of a jungle, and that is the it's it's a helicopter shot when Joker and Rafterman leave uh, Da Nang and head into uh, up to Fubai, and there's this helicopter canopy shot where you meet the door gunner, and right. uh, but everything else is you don't see any jungle. Now the rest of it uh, takes place in the city. And of course, that you know, it's historically correct, of course, because uh, especially when uh, uh, when Cowboy was talking about that's what he expected war to be like, and uh, that's what they're fighting from all reports uh, in uh, in that area was. You know, the uh, wasn't the jungle; it was the house to house fighting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, some of the the research that he had us do included. Uh, the Vietnam series by Stanley Carnell and Meditations in Green and Short Timers, of course, uh, which is the movie basically based on that and uh, Dispatches. And most of uh, most of the reading we did was very much anti-war. Uh, and there's a great book that I read hmm, when it first came out, maybe five years ago, called uh, Triumph Forsaken by a guy named Mark Moyer. And it's, he takes Vietnam from the early 50s when they first had some, uh, when we were helping the French there up until 65 when Johnson ordered the, uh, you know, the big increase in troops. And uh, he did a lot of backtracking into the um, the Soviet archives, and it shows basically we, we were kicking ass in that war. We were winning that war, and the only, the only reason we weren't able to secure it is, was the anti-war movement here at home. Uh, when we lost Cronkite, we lost the war, basically. But we, we got, and what people don't realize, is that we got all of our combat troops out of Vietnam in victory in 1972. There were no combat troops in Vietnam in 1975. Right. There were just security, right. there were security personnel. There were small detachments. There were security personnel. But the major combat forces were all gone. And we had won. We had won the war. We had secured it at the DMZ, but... Politics at home cut off the funding to uh, for the air power, and so right, uh, right. Cut off the air power, couldn't take out the tanks, so the north rolled south. Well, when you look, you know, you, you never know. I was before you came on. I was I was talking about uh, in the American Revolutionary War when they when they started, they didn't know. Now we can look back on it now and say, yeah, you know, great job. Well, you know, they knew they were going to win. And uh, you know, and, that, and that's, so that helped them to decide to to start the American Revolutionary War. But they didn't know that. They didn't know they were going to win. They had no idea. They did, they didn't know how it was going to turn out or how it was going to play out. When you look uh-huh. back on on things, you can see a lot. You can see a lot of strange things that happened. You know, the the Tet Offensive, which was a propaganda uh, coup for uh, uh, for Gap. Was uh, was brilliant as far as the propaganda went, but militarily, it was a disaster. He had every single one of his uh, of his forces were destroyed. All of his mm-hmm. all of his combat forces were destroyed in place, and and he had nothing left after that. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the only thing he had was somebody coming on the television and saying the war is lost. And, uh, right. And, and, and now. And now one of the guys who was testifying against the war is our Secretary of State. <laughs> we live in interesting times, brother. Well, it is interesting times. And, 
And and speaking of that, I, I would like to uh, I would just like to say that uh, in part of the write up that I did for the show is I was telling folks that <clears throat> that normally when people think of Hollywood and Los Angeles and uh, and actors and directors and stuff like that, uh, normally it's considered that, <clears throat> that everybody uh, out in in the whole state of California because a lot of people like to dog the state of California by spelling it with a K and stuff like that. And they're saying that, the, you know, the whole state is a complete uh, left-wing haven and uh, and it's all lost and stuff like that. And that you you have to be a, a leftist to live there, and especially you have to be uh, uh, from the far left to be in, uh, in entertainment. But uh, obviously you're living proof that... Uh, that you don't have to be that way. I think if people, if uh, any of you guys are on Twitter and you uh, and uh, you follow Mr. Baldwin, then you, uh, you'll see that definitely not uh, what you would think would be coming out of uh, uh, out of Los Angeles or California. Well, there's a, there are a lot more folks in the entertainment industry that uh, people don't get the credit for that are basically center right. They reflect the uh, the majority of the country. And the country, believe it or not, is still a center-right country. Uh, in the last election cycle, people think that did, didn't prove it, but we didn't have the best candidate up against the machine that Obama had. And a lot of people just didn't turn out. And it was really a turnout election as, a, as opposed to uh, you know, an ideological election. And the voter suppression that they did, blah, 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 all that analysis. Right. But it, it, be, the, be all that as it may, I think most places you go and any business you're in, most of the people in that business, uh, you know, the day in, day out guys who are working on the trucks and in the you know, electricians and the camera people, they're they're center right. They're libertarian or they, they live their lives in a conservative manner. They go to work every day. They work their butts off. They carry equipment all day long. They go home. They, they kiss their wives. They pet their dogs. They feed their kids. They drive them to school in the morning or on the weekends, they're little league coaches and stuff like that. So, and many actors are as well. They're just, they may be afraid to speak out uh, either because I like to call a lot of them non-combatants. There are a lot of just de facto non-combatants who don't, they don't care about politics. They just want to play the game and have fun and not worry about it. Not, not uh, make any waves. And, uh, you know that there's nothing wrong with that. It's a totally respectable way to go. There are others on the hard left who feel at liberty to speak out, and if they're as tolerant as they claim they want to be, then they should be tolerant of intellectual diversity, which I believe is truly the only kind of diversity that America is about. You know, intellectual yeah, diversity, not, not not racial diversity, not gender diversity, not sexual orientation diversity, and all that crap. Those are all Marxist divide and conquer categories. What we need is uh, varying viewpoints. Let's be tolerant of that. The only thought that we need to stop is uh, the thought that uh, stops thought. I think it was Chesterton, I'm paraphrasing. But uh, that, that totalitarian mindset of shutting people down and demonizing them, turning them into Orwell's Emmanuel Goldstein, if you will, that's the kind of thing that needs to be pushed back against. There are lots of, uh, I have lots of uh, liberal leftist friends out here, and 
we talk about politics, and as long as it can be convivial, Andrew Breitbart was one of the greatest guys at that. He loved to go out to dinner with folks on the left and talk about politics, and he would never get angry. He would just be, these are the facts, man. Check it out. And he would lay them on the table as opposed to pointing the finger and saying, you, you know, son of a, you, you can't say that. Uh, shut up. He wasn't that guy. He was, prove your point. And, uh, you know, leftists have trouble doing that because the premise of leftism is big government, and that's fundamentally not what America was founded on. Well, you know, you brought up a great point, and that is that that where where has the the art of debate gone in our nation? It's disappearing. There, there, the art, and that used to be one of the great things about this nation was the the way that people on, on any street corner, uh, anywhere in America, would gather together and they would debate, and and that is disappearing now uh, because you're being you're being shouted down, or I, I got to tell you, and, I, and I've got plenty of friends who are uh, who are Democrats, and I, I got nothing, I got no no grief with them. I'm I'm all for everybody having their own opinion, their own ideas. What I don't like is is as you were saying, is having debate demonized. That means that if whenever I bring in a, an opinion, a differing opinion. To have it shouted down and to have it listed as evil before before any thought or any debate is done on it, and that's where we are now, uh, at least on the far left. Uh, and uh, you can listen, you can hear the guys when they like on uh, on calling shows and stuff like that, or on TV. I always notice that the, the folks. It sounds like a lot of the folks from the far left. Have had seven or eight cups of coffee, and then they've and they and they've showed up really mad, you know, when they start talking. Well, part part of it is it's uh, leftism is a statist belief system. It's almost a, a religion. It's like a crypto quasi religion, and the goal is to create utopia, this heaven on earth, which anybody that lives in the real world knows is not not practical, not possible. Utopia is nowheresville. So you have to. You approach a uh, discussion argument with your leftist friends or community members with uh, standing in their shoes. So uh, Thomas Sowell writes about this beautifully, the vision of the constrained and the unconstrained. And what we believe is that man is born uh, a beast and he has the beast within and that needs to be constrained. You know, man is tragic and fallen. Whereas the unconstrained vision sees men as perfectible and that society can be perfectible. And the founders of the country realized that that's not the case. The case is that man is not perfectible and needs to be restrained from harming his fellow man. The job, as far as I'm concerned, of, of government is to protect me from you and you from me and not me from myself. Exactly. I don't want exactly. any. I don't want any state Bloomberg to tell us what size Coke we can drink. That's on me. Of course, you know the problem now is with uh, socialized welfare and socialized uh, Medicare and Obamacare. 
Joe Joe Schmo down at the corner who's drinking too much and getting too fat. I have to pay for his medical bills, so then it does become my business, and that that's America flipped on its head. I don't want to I don't want to care what Bill Blow is doing, but if I'm going to go to work and have to pay for his diabetes treatment, then then it makes me start to care, and then and everything just starts to fall apart. Right. Well, the, the fact is that no matter how much the government desires maybe to do some stuff, uh, that we're certainly we're, we're getting at, well, we're way past. There's no getting to. We're way past our ability to finance all the things that uh, that the government wishes to do. And and we're to the point now, I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous, they're, where they're suspending the White House tours in order to save money. But then on the other end of the spectrum, they are spending, they're, they're saving 50 bucks here, but they're still spending $100 million in another place. So uh, I, to, see the, to see our government at odds and, and stopped, uh, in their discussion of, of you know trimming the budget or, or trying to bring back fiscal responsibility, when they're stopped in place over a hundred million dollar uh, cost, when we're seeking about we're, we're talking about trillions of dollars, it is it just tells me that we're I don't know I, I sometimes I'm wondering if we're not actually beyond hope or beyond help as far as uh, fiscally financially. I, I don't. We're not over the cliff, and, and there's a lot of alarmism that's out there. America has so many resources that it's that are just untapped. Will it be painful to recover and turn it around? Yes. Uh, is it is it impossible? No. We we haven't crashed on the rocks yet. That that's that still looms over the horizon. But America, the sleeping giant, has finally awakened to it. It didn't quite awaken in time for the last election, <clears throat> but we may be at the point where. Folks just aren't going to be listening to arguments anymore. They don't. They're going to just be reacting to events, events that happen. And you can see people, after having reelected Obama, their paychecks still went down. And now they're starting to realize, well, so what he promised wasn't true. And uh, had, had we had a more articulate true, well, I don't want to say true, but a more conservative candidate, and you don't want to say just a more constitutionally minded candidate, because the Constitution is not conservative. What conservatives do is try to conserve the Constitution. Right. The Constitution, well, the Constitution is what we're conserving. That's why we're called conservative. So we didn't have an articula- a, a candidate articulating that strongly enough. So Events events will unfold and people will react accordingly. Now, coming up in 2016, more more than likely, you're going to have Hillary Clinton as the Democratic uh, candidate, and um, whoever our guy is or gal uh, woman is going to be is going to have to be strong enough to beat her. And that means because the media provides 10 to 15 percent advantage to the Democrat then our candidate has to be 10 or 15% better candidate than the last guy. And I tell you, it's going to be a, it would be a very difficult uh, race for whoever is running it, uh, running against Hillary, because I think that 
I think that as far as the Democrat Party is concerned, that's they're just they're waiting for all of this to get over and get it out of the way so that they can so that they can put Hillary in. And I think that a lot of people are are looking forward to that and they're and they're hoping for it. And I think that would be I think it would be a very motivating uh, a motivating uh, thing for the uh, Democrat Party. And I always have to wonder about uh, uh, now myself. I'm not a Republican. I'm a uh, uh, I'm a conservative, and I, I and I and I I run through about half of libertarian views. Uh, I would I would do more if I could figure out a way to make them work in my head. But uh, well, as long as, as long as they're not anarchy, then they're, yeah. then they're <laughs> exactly. But I have to wonder about the Republican Party about their. It seems to me. They're not. They're, it seems to me like they're very rarely ever picking the best guy. They just sometimes the guy they pick happens to work. It seems to me they just have the that they have this system of saying, okay, it's your turn. Uh, you waited long enough. Now it's, it's now everybody get back. It's McCain's turn, and uh, and so he runs, and and then we have the, the situation that we're in. Uh, and I, we keep looking for a really good candidate. Uh, for the conservatives, but uh, it's and right now it's awfully blurry future. Here's the here's the big problem that the Republicans face is, and and conservatism in general is conservatism. Mm, libertarians they want to go out and work and make a living and be left alone, basically go about their lives. So, whereas uh, Democrats, liberals, they look to government, so they reach to government and they work in government, so their talent pool is bigger. In government than is the conservatives or Republicans. They're just they have a right. bigger talent, more people who want to do it. So the question is, who wants that job? Fortunately, you have guys that are finally stepping up and who have grown up conservative, uh, such as Marco Rubio's and Ted Cruz's out there. There are stars on the horizon, and who are now just speaking up and, and coming into the into the forefront uh, that that have a shot. Right, because and, uh, because it's from their soul. They 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 grow. They they eat, sleep, breathe it. It's Americanism. Right, and and we're and you know people talk about politics. Uh, they they say well they've gotten really ugly, but you know if you look back in history, you'll find some really nasty politics. It's it's always been awfully nasty, but certainly the the way that now. Uh, and I don't see it as much on the other side of the aisle, but I certainly see it for the uh, any conservative or uh, Republican or Libertarian candidates. Is you'd have to ask yourself, who in the world would want to put themselves through that? Who would who would want to do that? Because there's plenty of people that could be ideal candidates, but then you're going to ask them if they're if they would do it. They say, "There's no way. There's no way I've subjected myself uh, to the." Uh, to the circus that would become they are candidates, you see. You can you can say anal probe on this show, can't you? Subject okay. yourself to subject yourself to their proctoscopic uh, examination. You're damn right they don't want to do that. Right. And uh, and and the whereas the Dems they know that the media will cover them for the most part, so they're not as they're not as worried. And it's it's what they live for. They live for state state control. They've lived for control over capitalism. Capitalism is basically competition. 
They don't like competition, and they like to shut it down because, for the most part, a lot of these guys and, and women, they grew up on the playground not being able to compete. They have uh, uh, inferiority complexes, so they need to uh, control the other people. And how do they do it? They do it with their words. They do it with writing laws and regulations and administrative uh, policy through boards, unelected boards, because they don't want to be held accountable. And it's just the nature nature of the beast, which is not to demonize them. I'm just saying that that's, that's the way they think. And uh, so the question is, how, how do you win at the ballot box? Fortunately, it's not as bad as people think. Most of the governors, I believe, are Republican. Most of the legislatures are still Republican. The states still maintain very much power. California is kind of screwed, but... What are you going to do? Well, speaking of California, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, when you and I were speaking about the the folks out of California being center right, and uh, like I said, a lot of people, a lot of people thought or they think otherwise. They still think otherwise, but mm-hmm. coming from the, an apple seed perspective, uh, you know, we we. We thought long and hard before we actually went into the state of California uh, to begin uh, running apple seed there because we'd been uh, we'd been threatened with uh, with civil and criminal penalties for doing it, and uh, and it made everybody apprehensive, thinking, "Oh my gosh, are we going to have to face jail because we're going to we want to go over and we want to run." A uh, you know a non-political uh, rifle marksmanship event and uh, and then we said well what what would be the benefits of it because obviously you know the folks in California don't want us there and and none of them feel the way we do and yet California is the leading state in apple seed uh, the folks were ready to come out onto the lines and you know by the thousands. And they get their rifles out and shoot and listen to the story of April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five. Uh they just they came running. And they still are. California still leads the nation and the number of folks who are willing to come out onto the firing lines and uh improve their rifle marksmanship and and listen to talk of American history, American heritage and uh and the events of April nineteenth. They still lead the way. Uh, by a long shot. And uh, and so that always gives me Hope, because uh, you know there's the 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 saying, uh, as California goes, so goes the nation, and so I'm hoping that that's true because California is leading the nation uh, with uh, apple seed events. Yeah, and the folks you meet out on the firing lines here are some of the nicest, coolest people. They're they're they've got their gear squared away. These are these are upstanding citizens. Many of them have served in law enforcement or their former military or their on leave military. These guys have their their stuff squared away, and uh, I have nothing but admiration for. I would say I haven't met I haven't met a not nice guy on a, on, a, on a firing line, and they're right. serious, and they're safe, and it, it's outrageous that they're they're being demonized because of the particular rifle that they may choose to use, which you know they you you know they call them mouse guns, little AR-15, so little two two three five five six. Those are mouse guns. They call them, yeah, they can do a lot of damage, but they're no, by no means weapons of war. They're being, I mean, it, it's basically um, a Ruger Mini-14 just with some uh, snappier handles on it. 
Right. So, and, and of course, they're completely demonized in uh, in California and in in a lot of other places across the nation. Uh, you know, we did a uh, we did a show out in Colorado. Uh, we got a friend of ours, Michael Bain, uh, has a program called Shooting Gallery, and right. uh, he he covered an apple seed uh, just recently. And I was trying to talk to him all this last week about the program and stuff, but he has been he's been there fighting tooth and nail in Colorado to try and stop what was happening there, which was close to what was happening in New York, and which has certainly been going on uh, over the last uh, 15, 20 years in California, and that is the demonization of the tool, you know, saying that uh, – Here's the problem, this particular thing. The tool is the problem, and uh, if we can control the tool, then we can alter this equation and we can uh, solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New York, they're, they're now they're running the the seven-round uh, magazines, and, of course, nobody even makes those. Nobody makes one. So they had to put in the, the caveat that you can have the ten-rounders, but they cannot have more than seven rounds in the magazine. So what is the point in this? And the only good point that I can come up with is is, uh, is if you read Ayn Rand, there's a section in there where they're talking about uh, we have to make sure that we make enough laws to make everybody a criminal so that, uh, so that we can control them through the law. And I can't think of any other good reason for this because how can uh, if you if you're counting the round number of rounds you put in your magazine and you make a mistake and you put one too many in, it will make you a criminal. But it, but not because of anything you did that was immoral, but simply because they have a law to limit the number of rounds in that magazine. And uh, this is going on all across the nation. I tell you what. On the other hand, let me play devil's advocate. I think that most of this stuff is just a big smokescreen to hide the other financial problems that we're really having and the unemployment problems because guns are sexy. Guns are, guns, like the um, the Sandy Hook incident is horrible and a horrible crime, but it was one individual that, that committed that crime, a crazy guy. Right, right. And you can't, I think you can't you hit it on the head. It. But they use, they use it because it's, you know, fire. You know, film of the fire at eleven. There's, there's blood. There's dead kids. It's horrible. They can exploit it, and they did. They stood on the graves, like Ben Shapiro said, and called uh, Piers Morgan out, ghoulishly standing on the graves of uh, innocent uh, slain children, and use it to demonize upstanding good citizens who are carrying firearms for sporting reasons, home protection, personal defense, or uh, the, what the Second Amendment provides. So you just have to you have to call these uh, propagandists out uh, on the left for what they're doing, and stand up strong because the Constitution is on our side. I really do have to run, but I want to say uh, thank you for having me. Well, Adam, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on the show and speak because uh, I know you got a busy schedule. Like I said, you're you're like the, the looking at your record. You're like the, the James Brown of the entertainment industry. You've got uh, uh. You've got uh, stuff going on all along. And I want to uh, I want to reinvite you to uh, to attend an apple seed out in California. We'll be glad to set it up for you. And uh, also, I'm going to send you the dates for Battle Road because we have uh, the uh, zombie apocalypse coming on October 12th of this year, 
And I know you couldn't make the last one, but uh, we're going to try and lure you out. And if you don't want to fly with your guns or anything, uh, we'll be glad to set you up with all the gear you need to run it. Well, I really appreciate that, and I look forward to it. I'll make plans for it. Thank you so much, Michael. All right. Thank you very much for coming on tonight. God bless you and yours. Take care, and uh, and best of luck and skill to you, brother. God bless you. See you on Twitter. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, okay. I wasn't looking at the switchboard. Uh, Ed, you had a question, and, of course, uh, Adam's gone now, but go, go ahead and ask it. Ed, you there? Okay. Yeah, sorry uh, about that. Uh, that's all right. No, uh, did you, you hear me did you, Did the question get asked? Ed, no, no, you never did ask my question. Um, but, you know, you had a great discussion, and uh, I'm not terribly disappointed. I, mostly what I wanted to do was ask him what happened to Vera. Vera? Uh, yes. Is Gun in, on Firefly? Vera? Oh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I was uh, I was reading in uh, in part of the uh, biography uh, this last week. Uh, he was talking about when they came back to do Serenity to, to do the movie, mm-hmm. and he still had the boots and stuff. That he, you know, that he still had them, and uh, and then he had something else, and they made him a new holster or something for the. Uh, the, the, for his pistol, but uh, uh, well, I apologize. I should have asked because I, I know that a lot of people uh, really liked that show, and I, I came into it late. I just started watching it last year because uh, one of the Appleseed guys, Steve Raby, was telling me about it, and I said, I, you know, he was trying to explain it to me. I go, I don't know. That that, that doesn't. It sounds strange, <clears throat> but I I. I wish I could have spoken to Adam more about that because now that you bring it up because the whole the Firefly premise was really kind of relevant to to what we're going on with today. You know, they had uh, well, it, and and it, it fits very well with you know it, uh, with what you were talking about just you know not you know minutes ago because um, you know it, uh, Malcolm Reynolds, you know, the captain of Firefly of, of Serenity. Um, he, he one of the things he says in the Serenity movie was, you know, um, maybe on another world, maybe on this very ground swept clean, a year from now, ten, they'll swing back to the belief that they can make people better, and I do not hold to that. So no more running. I aim to miss the hit. That's a direct quote from the movie. Um, wow. It's one of my favorite quotes of, of all time. Well, that's dang. I wish I would have. Uh... I wish I would have been paying closer attention uh, to this. I was, uh, at the whole thing, the time while I was talking, while I was speaking with Adam, I was trying to make sure that uh, that I was paying attention to uh, uh, the uh, the I, uh, uh, IDMB, uh, you know, for the uh, uh, for the movie credits and stuff like that, and then right. also some historical stuff that I was. I was trying to pay attention to in case uh, in case the discussion went that way, one way or the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I would have. I, I think that's perfect because you're right. That's exactly what he was just talking about, which is yeah. uh, we can make man better. We can make we yeah. can make man better. We can make him perfect. And, uh, and you can't do that. You can't yeah. make man perfect. I, 
And have you not seen uh, Serenity the movie? I, I saw half of it just recently uh, because they have it on kind of a, on a rotation. Every once in a while, they'll have uh, all the fireflies will come through, and then they'll have the movie. And uh, I've seen, I've almost seen the whole movie now, but uh, but I haven't seen it all. And, uh, and but I've seen the uh, a lot of the episodes of Firefly. And I thought it was really, I thought it was really a great premise because it, it, you know, it kind of goes on to the whole idea of, you know, even if we, even if we escape Earth and we make other places to live, that is certainly not the, the beginning of Utopia because you just, uh, in essence, you make other, other places to go to war with, you know. Yeah, it's um, it's unfortunate. I saw one episode when they were first aired live, uh, you know, because I was like, oh, okay, you know, somebody at work had said, oh, you should watch Firefly, and I watched it, and then it just was it was the wrong episode for the mood that I was in, and I thought, you know, I don't know that I'm really into cowboys in space, right, right, and 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 so I never watched another episode for years, and then finally, uh, you know, I heard that they were going to be doing a movie, and I and I just happened to run into a marathon where they played like all 13 episodes in a row. And I literally sat in place and watched all 13 straight. And I was like, wow, this, this is more than what I thought it was. And the episode that I had saw was like episode six or something like that. And it, it was like, yeah, that episode I didn't care for, but all the rest were great. Uh, the movie, um, especially from like a libertarian standpoint is, is fantastic. Right, right, and it's it 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 shows uh, uh, it, it shows the workings of of a uh, of an oppressive government uh, on a much vaster scale than uh, you know than simply here on Earth and how they have uh, uh, how the government has grown and uh, and. It just it, sometimes it seems to me that there's that there's certainly no escape there's no escape from this situation that we're in and uh, and that there is nothing to limit the size that the uh, government will grow to you know uh, I agree with you entirely and if you ever want to to discuss you know you know after hours or whatnot uh, all those libertarian pieces that you don't understand feel free to call <laughs> well here's some of the things you know like uh, like uh, you know, you look at uh, things like uh, say drugs, uh, and right. the first thing I, that I would want to say is, what business is it of mine what somebody does? Uh, you know, as far as drugs, why is, why is it any of my business what they do? And, you know, if somebody wants to, uh, if somebody wants to use any of the uh, illicit drugs that they that we have right now. Then, 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 so what? Go for, do it. You know, it's a, to me, it's no different than uh, than alcohol, and it certainly can't be any more damaging, uh, and not just to your to your body physically, but to society. It can't be any more damaging to society for us to have uh, folks smoking uh, uh, marijuana or doing other illicit drugs than what they're doing now. And right now, they're they're doing it anyway. And there's nothing we we've got this war on drugs that we've been running forever. We're not doing any good on it. Uh, I mean, we're we're 
certainly giving somebody somewhere a black eye by taking their money and their and their drugs and stuff, but it's nothing compared to to the bigger picture. You know, we've got uh we've got folks who are out there working hard every day of their lives, uh putting their lives on the line and even losing their lives to try and stop the flow of illicit drugs in this country. And uh and they do a damn good job at it. But if even if they you know, even if they stop or they capture uh hundreds of millions or even a billion dollars worth of drugs at the border or wherever we still have uh, hundreds of billions of drugs that they're, of dollars of drugs that they're not catching, and the damage that it's doing uh, to our nation as far as uh, the war on drugs and making uh, making tens of thousands of criminals every year, uh, American citizens criminals, and the huge amount of violence that it causes by funding. Uh, the drug cartels, and not just the drug cartels. I mean, if all of the terrorist organizations are using drugs to fund their terrorist activities. So you would think, on the on the surface of it, you would just say, "Well, just make it a, make it legal." And then now we've we've pulled the teeth out of the uh, the drug demons. But it just is not that easy. It's not that easy to. Uh, it's not that easy to make work. You know, well, so. it, it, it is actually that easy. Um, if you think about it uh, from the standpoint of the, the you know, the prohibition um, and what we went through and experienced there, uh, we we actually did it the right way. We went and made a constitutional amendment that said that alcohol was you know now illegal. We we then learned a lesson that no matter how much we wanted to make it illegal, it wasn't going to work. And we came around and we got rid of that amendment. You know, we, we passed another amendment to, to get rid of prohibition. And, you know, most of the problems went away. Yet we're stuck with many of the laws that were resultant from that prohibition. Uh, because, yeah, you had gangs with fully automatic weapons out there. And thus they passed the NFA of 1934. And we're still stuck with that. Right. Um I, I view it more as, uh, as you know, today it, it's it's more about control. It's both sides um, of the aisle want control, but they want it for different reasons, and nobody right. is willing to give up that control. Right. Well, like I said, in, 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 you may be right, but uh, from looking at the places. Well, they have tried uh, not legalization. Because I don't know that many people that uh, not many countries that have really made it legal. But uh, for a while, places like uh, oh, Switzerland, Amsterdam, had uh, looked the other way policies. And uh, oh, I don't know if you remember the uh, the heroin park that they had and uh, the stuff like that. They were they were all horrible failures. And uh, and. There and understanding that that that, it, that that there may be it may be another answer. I'm just saying that it's not a good answer. Uh, there is no good answer to it. I mean, there is no good answer, and and that goes all the way back to the fact that uh, that people that the that humans 
will continue to search to find some type of uh, drug or drink or whatever to, and to alter their their state of mind. It's just like it's you know it's part of uh, I guess it's part of our makeup. But well, it's but human. making it legal so that everybody is doing it is uh, is a good answer for some things. Let me just put it that way. It's a good answer for some things. It's just not a good answer for everything. Well, uh, you know, much like teenagers, um, we humans like to do things that we're told that we're not allowed to do. Right. It's, uh, it's kind of a basic fact of our makeup. You know, tell us that you, no, no, you can't jump across that gorge on a bicycle, and we're going to go try. Um, it, it, it um, if 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 a if a crime has no victims, um, it really shouldn't be against the law. I mean, if the only person you're endangering is yourself, I have no problem with anybody doing whatever the heck they want. You know, it, it it's the moment that you start risking other people's lives that is where, you know, we have problems. Right. Right. And then well, that's how that's how we end up with these laws because you know people you know get a bunch of drinks and then they drive down the road. Now they're endangering others by their own, by their actions. Right. Right. Well, like I said, there's a, there's on the surface, you know, a lot of things seem simple, but uh, there there is always so many intended and unintended consequences, uh, you know, every action has its equal and opposite reaction. <laughs> so on the surface, some things seem simple, and it seems like a, a logical choice, but uh, I just got to say that, uh, you know, that, that things like uh, legalizing drugs, uh, to me anyway, uh, seem like it carries almost as many minuses as the as having it illegal, having it remain illegal causes. But, uh, well, but so there's no way to know for sure unless you unless you actually pulled the plug and did it, you know. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you that there is one success story in this regards that you should go look up, and that is Portugal decriminalized pretty much everything. They didn't uh, – I don't know the exact status. They didn't really make it legal, but they decriminalized everything. And they're – basic drug use across the board has dropped since they passed this. And their problems with gangs and everything else has also dropped. It's very much worth your research. Uh, I I don't typically like, you know, uh, I understand why people want to prohibit drugs because if you think about, you know, what people are doing to their bodies, they're doing awful things to themselves by taking these drugs. And, you know, you always want to say, hey, don't do these bad things. But um, if you think about it... Yeah, it's not not in my business. It's not in my business to tell people what to do one way or the other, you know. And it's certainly not the government's business, you know. Yes. And, you know, every every time we have tried prohibition, no matter what it is, it has not worked. I mean, if you think about what the Democrats want to do today, what they want to do is prohibit guns. It's not going to work. We know that. Well, the I, I think that uh, one of the things that Adam brought up, I think, is uh, is very is very relevant because I, I even wrote an article about it uh, just recently. 
and that is uh, the fact that that we are at a 100-year low with gun violence. We're at a hundred a hundred-year low in gun homicides. So now the the huge push is on to make guns uh, and gun legislation uh, up at the very front of uh, of everybody's thinking. And if gun violence and gun uh, homicides are at a hundred year low, then what is the real reason that this is being dogged so hard for? And my my conclusion was much like uh, what Adam was saying. I said, you know, this is, to me, it's a classic uh, shell game uh, type of approach. Uh, you know, just like the, the, the magicians that are making you uh, look at the girl and the, the, the shell game guy that's, that he's making you watch his hand and the shell because he doesn't want you to see what the other hand is doing. You know, it, it's the, uh, uh, it's the, the whole idea of, uh, uh, of the deceptive saint, uh, making you look here when you should be looking somewhere else. And so what is it? What is it that, that right now that everybody is pushing so hard on this because they don't want us to see what they're holding in their other hand? And what is that? And, uh, the 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 only obvious thing that comes to mind is the financial uh, shenanigans that are going on right now, is the financial destruction uh, that is going on in the country. I, 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 I you know I, I I'm not a big believer in conspiracy theories, and uh, I agree with you. Um, it, it mostly. Uh, I don't think it's really a conspiracy. I just think it's one of the things it, where. Where they say, "Look, let's we've got to let's push this because if not, if we can't keep everybody's idea minds on this, they're going to be howling mad when they see that we're not doing what we should be doing uh, financially." What when the and but people the people are already howling at that. Um, yeah. And and if you look, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, if you if you look at what the um, Corporate media. Let's, I'll just label them as that. You know, some people call them mainstream media. You know, who cares? Um, you know, the, the ones that are the major network outlets. If you look at what they're reporting versus what is actually happening on the financial side, it's they're all rah rah rah. Dow just hit a new record for the tenth straight day. Rah rah rah. And you you look at what's actually happening and you go. Okay, Europe's still falling apart. China's going into a recession. Uh, there's nothing good here. Our growth last quarter was, you know, 0.1%. Barely above a recession, you know, the first quarter of a recession. Um, there are people that are, you know, the uh, ERCI, the people who keep, you know, the official when did recession start and end in the U.S., um, says that we have been in a recession since, like, June of last year. Nobody's talking about that. Um, right. It's, uh, I, I think that it's, um, it comes down to that they, the media have learned how to play us, or not all of us, 
but you know, a, a significant fraction of the population to just get us to, you know, focus on what they want us to focus on and ignore all else. Uh, I see my, you know, sister's eyes glaze over when I mention anything to them. It can be the most yeah. benign subject. Yeah, but because we have we're, right now we have such a an overload of information uh, in our daily lives that that you could basically it, it, you could basically almost have anything occur, and uh, it's no different than than say looking on a forum uh, page or any kind of a chat page or anything else. It, it's going to be news. Uh, until it gets to the bottom of the page, and then it and then it scrolls off the page, and then it's no longer news, and and it, everybody is so overloaded with information that uh, it's almost like the government can really basically do anything they want and get away with it as long as they can keep us looking the other way for just a couple of more minutes until it scrolls off the page, you know. Exactly, and you know that that the news cycle is you know hours now instead of days or weeks or months. You know, it's – and the media concentrate on, you know, certain events and ignore all, all all the others that may be contrary to, you know, that position. You know, I never once heard about that, that uh, woman who defended herself and her daughter in, in the house against the guy who broke in. I never heard that once on the on the major media. But – Oh, we're not going to hear – any time that uh... – that firearms are used in a defensive uh, fashion, very seldom will you hear about it on the media because uh, to them that goes com- that goes directly against uh, their philosophy. And uh, so they try to make sure they downplay it. Otherwise, uh, it would be, there would be a flood of it because the cons- uh, conservative, I don't mean conservative as in, as in conservative people, I just mean a conservative estimate. Uh, of the times that firearms are used to uh, to legally uh, protect yourself or your loved ones or property, uh, runs at about one and a half to two million times per year. Yeah, uh, the low the low on that that I've heard is eight hundred thousand, and the high is two point four million, and it's right. somewhere in that range. Right, because if uh, if I am staying on my front porch, and believe me, I've, I have many cases of this, uh, of where just the uh, just the the uh, having a firearm appear have stopped what was going to happen, uh, and you can't. And people don't get on the phone and say, "Hey, uh, I was just had a pistol in my hand and it stopped this guy from." Uh, uh, you know, from attacking my family or something. They're very well, soon they do that. And, and you're not going to report happens. that. You're not going to report that to the police either. Because uh, absolutely not. That's what I'm saying. People don't report that, but yet it happens. You know, they had uh, uh, they were doing a, a uh, report the other day, and they were talking about uh, who was it? I believe that uh, oh, there were several different. Uh, uh, instances of this at once, where where women were being told that they should not use firearms to defend themselves, and uh, I had I was reading one of the responses to this in a blog, and it was saying, "Look, are you kidding me?" They said they we've got uh, uh, almost two hundred and fifty thousand 
times a year that women use firearms to prevent assault or rape. They said, are you telling me, are you trying to tell these women that they should be taking one for the team uh, in order to help uh, uh, validate and, and, the, the less response? And some of the Democrats in the uh, Colorado uh, Senate told some rape victims that to their faces, which was shocking. Well, I don't, that's I all over, all that, over that, YouTube. That, that everybody knows that uh, that whenever when we're talking about this, <clears throat> uh, I'm certainly not trying to uh, uh, to dog any of the uh, the Democrats uh, because uh, because I, actually I feel I, I feel bad for a lot of the uh, of Democrat voters because I feel like that their their party has been uh, Shanghai. Uh no different than uh, than than a lot of the uh uh than any party can get Shanghai. The left, the right, either one. I don't want uh, anybody to think that I'm saying that that there's anything inherently wrong with any kind of uh, uh any person who uh, votes Democrat or anything like that. But I'm not. Uh, well, we've got a lot of and, good, uh, and, folks that I know that uh, that are Democrat voters, and uh, and I love sitting down and speaking with them. Uh, I just uh, I don't have I, I just don't have room on my plate for the folks in the far left who say that it is better for a person to be robbed or raped than for them to have a firearm and use it to defend themselves. I just I think that is just that's ultimately insane. Uh, you know, we are we are endowed by our Creator with the right to defend ourselves and our loved ones. This isn't a government given right. This is a right given to us by a higher power than man. If you don't believe in in in, in God or anything else, it's still a higher power than man who is, that is endowing with this you with this uh, with a right. To live, all right. Nobody has a right to to tell you that you can't live uh, uh, unless it's uh, uh, unless it's a, a court of law that is uh, you know that's adjudicating you guilty of some capital offense. And even then, a lot of folks would say that uh, that the government does not have the right in that case. So uh, that is my that would be my argument. Or my discussion against uh, against the far left, not against Democrats, but against the far left. Yeah, it's um, from my standpoint. I, I have a lot of the same issues with the far right. Um, you know, being a little old libertarian type that I am. You know, um, you know, with with a lot of the things that get argued on that side of the fence with uh, First Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights. Um, this, you know, it's it's kind of like um, somebody, you know, ha- they had a card game, you know, back in the, in the early 1900s, and they said, okay, here's our deck, it's the Bill of Rights, and they passed them out, you know, they mixed them up and they passed them out and said, okay, Republicans, you're for these five, and Democrats, you're for those five. It it it, it really kind of disturbs me from time to time. Right. You know, it's uh. The, the Democrats will be for states' rights when it comes to legalizing drugs, and then they'll be against state rights for other issues. It, it, it boggles the mind. It's like, 
how, how can you handle this cognitive dissonance in your own head? Um, you know, absolutely. But the that's why I was saying that, uh, that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm against, uh, I'm, I'm an equal, uh, uh, far direction, uh, uh, yeah. person because, uh, I certainly agree. And I certainly agree with the, uh, uh, uh with my unhappiness with, uh, a lot of the far right thinking and, uh, especially the, the far right when it comes to, uh, uh, the uh, the homeland security stuff and the uh, all of the uh, all of the stuff that uh, all of the uh, the stuff that they were pushing through uh, along with the uh, all of the terrorism uh, anti-terrorism laws and stuff like that. Uh, I think that uh, the far right, while trying to be helpful was uh was chopping off uh chopping off our uh our rights uh just as fast as they could yeah both sides are guilty it's um i i bear no real ill will towards either side other than the fact that you know i, I you know they're they're both guilty of something and usually they're guilty of disparate things which only leads us to the point that I just can't trust anybody being in charge. <laughs> they're going to they're going to get rid of some things that I that I like, you know. Yeah, one now, side now I'm, I'm peace, seeing the other your, side will be firearms. Yeah, I'm seeing your your libertarian uh, views bubbling to the top with ferocity now. <laughs> we, <laughs> we don't want anybody in charge. Well, no, no, it, it's. Uh, in a lot of ways, I would I would label myself as a minarchist. You know, I believe in a small government because I believe that there are certain things the government could be a, the best solution for. And I think that the founders didn't do such a bad job with the Constitution, but clearly, you know, as Lysander Spooner said, you know, um, the Constitution has proven uh, helpless to stop the growth of government. So clearly it right. was what was intended by certain members of, of the authoring of the Constitution. Um, we need to bind our, our government in stronger chains. You know, that, that's my personal belief. Right, and of course the whole idea behind the Constitution was that was the whole idea behind it. The whole idea was exactly. to limit the government. It was not it was not to establish a powerful uh, government, although there, there, you can't say that that was on everybody's minds because it wasn't. You had everybody, you had all kinds of uh, thoughts and philosophies who were gathered together in those rooms to to write this up as you would uh, for anything. You had people who, uh, all the way from uh, after just freeing themselves from a uh, 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 a monarchy, who would uh, who would have been just as happy to write the Constitution in such a fashion that it mimicked a monarchy. And you had people who who were in uh, uh, who were pushing. Uh, a very, very strong national government. And you had other people who were pushing a uh, completely decentralizing government and allowing the states to govern themselves with only uh, with only a minor uh, oversight by a national government. And, yep. and they were all, in the last few minutes of this thing, you, you can see how in the last few minutes they were 
Everybody was pushing and pulling, and and they were trying so hard to get this thing pushed through that uh, that it left a lot of big holes in in places. You know, you people arguing about uh, about religion and how the government. Uh, you'll have people that will quote you day and night. Uh, they'll say that the uh, Constitution uh, says that uh, that there is a separation of church and state. And, uh, and it, may, it says no such thing. The only thing it says is the the government shall make no laws concerning this. Uh, well, it didn't say that the states couldn't make laws. As a matter of fact, that was that was completely implied was that the states could make whatever laws they wanted to concerning this. And, and interestingly, um, th- that exact issue, um, the reason why they had put that in, and and and, the, and for the phrasing that it has is that the government shall not establish. Um, they, it, what they were trying to do was prevent... Well, they were afraid of a, of, England, of a state religion being established again. Exactly. It was, the government shall not establish a religion. It wasn't that there shall be separation of church and state. No, um, because each of the colonies it, had their own... They, each of the colonies had been established by religious factions. And, some of them, yeah. yeah. And you had the uh, the... Uh, the, each of the colonies also lobbying for their religions, and you had uh, a, gr- a, a large number of uh, uh, of clergy and everyone else who were lobbying the Congress, and then you had sections of uh, of the folks who needed to who needed to sign it for it to be ratified, saying if this if there's something in here about this or if there's something about uh, these guys, that's it, it's done, it's out. And so they were trying to make sure that they were making everybody happy, and the only way to do that was to say that we won't to put into to effect that will not establish any type of government religion, which is all that they were trying to say. We're not going to the government is not going to be pushing any one religion over the other. Exactly. It was they were fearful of the government uh, choosing one and pushing all the others out. Right. Which would have been an identical situation to why most of the people had left England in the first place. So, as written, it makes sense given the times and the expectations of the people alive then. Uh, it certainly didn't vastly misused since. Right. But, um, um, you know, it, it's one of the things that I had been, you know, struggling with at Appleseed is, you know, uh, I've been trying to figure out, you know, uh, how I give my talk at the end of the day on Sunday and what I what I say and what I don't say. One of the things that I'd, I'd really love to figure out is how to really recommend that everybody go back and and not only read about, you know, the formation of our country, but read both the, the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers because most people seem to um, adhere to one side or the other. Both sides actually make very, very good points. Um, and it, it is it is worthy of understanding, you know, that debate because that debate is still alive and well today. It, it is the basis of you know nearly every issue that we have on a national level today. Well, absolutely. And if you go through it and read, or at least for me, if you go through and read the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, then what you'll do is you'll <laughs> is you'll uh, as you're reading through them, you'll you'll be switching back and forth. I'm a federalist. No, I'm an anti-federalist. No, now I'm a federalist. 
because, as you said, they they both make really good points, and uh, and I certainly encourage people to read those documents because, and uh, I'll tell you this uh, every day of the week, and that is, a lot of people think that uh, that if you go back and you read this stuff from two hundred and 30, 40, 300 years ago, that it can't have any relevance uh, relevance now. But I'm telling you that the folks, the thoughts, the minds that put together uh, our nation were some of the most brilliant minds uh, in history. And if you'll read their writings, you'll read what they what they meant when they were putting the government together. Then then I think that you would be you will be astounded at the brilliance uh, that these guys put uh, into their writings, uh, or the brilliance of these guys in their writings, because uh, it's absolutely amazing and just as relevant today as it was then. I mean, when you read of somebody writing almost 300 years ago saying that uh, the idea of making matches illegal because one man burned somebody else's house down is is insane. Can't outlaw fire because somebody burned someone else's barn down. And uh and that's what you we're have going to go to after today. the arsonists. Right. Yeah, you because, have to go uh, you have to go after go ahead. Yeah, the government well the government just thinks that and I've mentioned this plenty of times before, is that 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 is their job. Their job is the uh, as legislatures as legislators are is to make laws, so that is going to be their solution to a problem. Because what else are they going to do? I mean, that, that's their solution is to make a law, you know, to make a law to make something I don't know safer, uh, healthier, happier. That is their solution to it. But if you look at uh, firearms laws and you look at uh, over forty thousand laws on the books, uh, I think that's I think that's enough. I mean, I think that uh, I don't know that making anything ten times more illegal is going to make it more illegal because uh, the same thing with the uh, the seven rounds in a magazine. I can guarantee you that if I'm part of a crew that is, I've gotten together with uh, three or four of my buddies in order to plan a robbery. Okay, there's conspiracy, uh, and we're riding in a stolen vehicle. There's auto theft. And we go and commit uh, this crime of robbery. Okay, there's uh, uh, there right there is uh, armed robbery. Do you think that I'm going to balk at putting an ace bullet in my magazine? It's it, it it has no effect on the people who it should be having the effect on. And if I'm insane, if I am well, if I meet all the legal standards of insanity, do you think that? That, that I'm going to adhere to a man-made law, uh, it's just it, it, making laws are the things that these guys are they their hands are tied except for making laws. So they have to make a law in order for them to validate the, their jobs or their positions. Uh, you know, I'll leave you with this thought since uh, I know you're you're getting short on time and you probably have a few things you want to say. Um, it, in law, there are there are there are basically two different types of crimes. There are the malintent, which are 
that are bad in and of themselves. And there are mal prohibita, which are crimes uh, because doing such is prohibited. Right. Uh, we really we really ought to concentrate on the crimes that are bad in and of themselves and forget the mal prohibita because we can't legislate morality, we can't legislate good behavior, um, we can't change our, you know people's minds because, oh, wow, you know, somebody said I wasn't allowed to do this. So, I, you know, wow, maybe I shouldn't. It just right. doesn't happen. So, right. anyway, Scout, great well, thank you, Thank you, Ed, for calling in. It's a pleasure speaking with you as always. And I'll talk to you later. Bye, Scout. All right. You take care, brother. All right, listen, guys, I want to remind you that uh, that uh, com is uh, is paying the bills for this show. They're not paying me money, okay, so don't blog talk, don't get excited. They're just paying my, the bills as far as paying for the, uh, the airtime and everything else. <clears throat> and uh, you guys can help uh, keep us on the air, and you can help yourselves by attending a Battle Road USA course. Now, uh, coming up in uh, the first week of April, April 1st through 5th, 2013, we have a precision rifle sniper course at our range in uh, Develop. And the course is being taught by uh, one of our own guys, Staff Sergeant John Hawes, Bullgun 71, uh, who's currently a small arms and combat applications training course instructor with the Army. Now, he's been shooting with uh, shooting for the military, as in overseas and bad guys shooting back, or instructing military shooters for the last 10 years. He was a uh, Iraq and Afghanistan veteran. He was leading uh, sniper teams and reconnaissance teams uh, for quite a while uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, he was awarded the Silver Star while he was there for an action uh, involving himself and 12 members of his team uh, uh, in a battle on top of a mountain, uh, and his uh, platoon sergeant there won the Medal of Honor during this. Uh, John is a fantastic instructor, and I'm telling you, you're you're not going to get a better course than this. And we're going to where this course is a five day course. We're ca- we're charging five hundred dollars for it, which is half of what anybody else charges for this. Now I don't know if the next time we run it, if it'll be five hundred dollars. And we've still got a few slots left, but only a few. So if you want to uh, come to this course, then uh, be sure and uh, contact us. You can go to battleroadusa.com and uh, and go to the Precision Rifle Sniper course page, and uh, you can get in touch with us there. Uh, we're also uh, uh, running a uh, uh, running the uh, uh, Battle Road... Uh, pistol craft and fighting handgun course, and uh, this is coming up. Uh, let me make sure I give you the dates right. Uh, uh, March 30th and March 31st. March 30th and March 31st. Now we know that uh, we know that it's getting harder and harder to find ammunition, and uh, we have. We've altered the round count for the course. Uh, instead of uh, firing the 500 rounds per day for the course, uh, we pushed it down to 250. Uh, and we're also working on a deal to uh, be able to provide you 
uh, with ammunition they can be purchased when you get here. Uh, not that uh, we're going to be, we're, we're, that we'll be selling commercially, but we'll be purchasing it and then selling it to you at our cost so that you can take the course, all right? Uh, that is March 30th and March 31st. Once again, you can find that by, by going to battleroadusa.com. Listen, the the courses that we're teaching here at uh, Battle Road USA, and I'm not to toot our own horn or, or maybe absolutely to toot our own horn, these courses are taught by uh, uh, by Mark Martinez, and uh, he is a uh, he's a veteran of over 1,000 hours of uh, of combat shooting uh, and courses, and uh, the courses that we're offering here are not baby courses. All right, uh, they are uh, I would say are are our initial course would be more as an intermediate or advanced course. So don't think that uh, that taking the pistol craft or the fighting handgun is going to be like a level one or a baby course. These are advanced courses. And, uh, and our philosophy at Battle Road is to make sure that you are ready. If you're a concealed can, uh, handgun carrier, then to make sure that you are ready to use the firearm that you're carrying with you. That's why all of our evolutions will start with drawing from concealed. You're going to draw from concealed over and over again to make sure that you understand uh, the skills and techniques it takes to uncover, to draw your weapon, to get offline, get out, get to break the uh, the loop with your opponent, to get off the line, and again begin placing three to four rounds per second into the target. Uh, in order to assure, uh, to give you the best possible chance uh, of surviving the situation, uh, you're doing this, uh, you're going to be doing this until it becomes routine. Uh, so, if you're a concealed carry license holder uh, and you want to make sure that uh, that you understand how to how to use that pistol that you're carrying, then uh, get in touch with us at BattleRoadUSA.com and uh, we'll do our best to get you set up. <clears throat> All right, uh, I want to thank uh, Sandy. As always, Sam is uh, manning the uh, the switchboard, and uh, he does a great job uh, uh, week in, week out. If I'm here, Sam's here. And uh, you don't hear him very much. Uh, every once in a while he jumps in and says something. But uh, he's manning the uh, the controls of, the, uh, of this spacecraft, and uh, he yells in my ear every now and then. Uh, and I want to thank him for being here every time I am because uh, he he is devoting the same uh, the same uh, what is it I think I measured that to be like uh, either two weeks of eight hour days or three weeks of eight hour days uh, every year. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you can hear him laughing now. Or maybe I don't know if you can. I can. He's laughing right now, but he's he's still he's here doing the same thing I am. So Sam, thank you very much and. Uh, and guys, we'll see you uh, next Thursday uh, at uh, 7 p.m. Central. We'll have the director, uh, we'll have the of the movie theater with us. And uh, we'll see you then. Thank you and God bless you all.
Can you meet me? You call this liberty. 